Good morning, everybody. How's it going today? Good, I'm good. Thanks for asking. Great to see you. I'm glad you're here today. So um, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll notice something today. No food. We ran out of food. Actually, we gave it away. That was the whole goal, right? Yeah, so we gave... Go ahead. Don't you sometimes just want to clap for no reason at all? That was a good reason, though. We know we had food, so we've been doing a food drive for the last four weekends for Twin Lakes Food Bank, and we brought in four tons of food over the last four weeks. It was fantastic. Now you can clap for that. That's cool. And uh, we made that a competition, so we have seating sections here, and uh, so we did a little seat section competition to see who could bring the most food. We promised a treat for the section that brought the most food. So who do you think won? We should, we should, like, box it out right here. <laughs> All right, so section two. Yeah. So you guys are so generous. Great job being generous to others. And we just thought, in the spirit of generosity, let's just take their gift and give it to everybody. <laughs> Including you. I mean, you guys get something, too. We're not taking it away from you. We just added to it. So, uh, so at the end of our time to, to get to, uh-oh, today... Uh, we're going to have treats out on the patio. We're going to have holy donuts. Also known as donut holes out there for you. So, um, again, no, every section, no, really, every section. You can tell, you can tell how delightful these donut holes are going to (laughs) be. Two holes for you. Okay, that's good. All right. All right. Anyway, thank you very much for your generosity in that whole process. That, it's really, really helpful, and I'm proud of you for that journey that we've been on together and uh, really appreciate being able to give something to help others. So thank you for that. Let's pray together, then we're going to look into Scripture. Okay? Father in heaven, thanks for your goodness to us. You have poured out your goodness on us uh, in so many different ways, and so thank you for that. Lord, one of the ways you've provided for us is you've given us food and resources to have food, and so thank you for that. I thank you that you can use us to bless others in that way. That's just a good thing. So thank you for that. Uh, Lord, thanks for my friends here. I don't know everything you're doing in every person's life. I'm not even aware of everything you're doing in my life. But Lord, we're grateful for the things that we see, the things that we know about you, the things that we're learning about you, and the way you're shaping us to live our lives as followers of Jesus. So thank you for those things. Bless us today as we look into your scripture and shape us to be the men and women and people that you want us to be. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are going to finish up today our series in the life and letters of Peter. We've been calling this series Zero to Hero because that describes Peter's life and uh, describes kind of how he did a lot of things that were sort of zero on the, hey, that was a smart move scale. You know, in the early part of his journey with Jesus. And then as the Spirit of God got a hold of him and kind of got into him and and worked with him and walked with him, uh, Peter's life changed. It was transformed in certain ways that were really remarkable uh, as he became more and more like Christ himself. So uh, we've been studying his life. And then we're looking at that and trying to figure out how much is that like our lives and how far we were from God and how God through Jesus has brought us closer and closer to him and hopefully to, be, to make us more and more like him. So our, our goal is that we would be transformed as passionate and productive followers of Jesus. And that's Peter's goal as he writes these letters to us, First and Second Peter, and as we've looked at his stories uh, in the Gospels. So 
with those things kind of in mind, I want to jump right in today and, uh, and uh, look at 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, why don't you look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Hey, you guys in the booth, it feels a little dark in here. It feels like these guys can't read if they got a paper Bible maybe quite so well. So maybe we can do a little bit more lighting. That would be helpful. Uh, so 2 Peter chapter 1 in your Bibles. We've got Bibles on the chair next to you. Thank you, guys. And uh, you, if you got your Bible on your smartphone, that's cool. We got the notes on you version, so you can follow along with that if you like, or you can just listen. A lot of options, so you got to figure it out. All right, ready? Second Peter chapter one. Uh, Peter starts off this letter like they were prone to do in their culture. They signed their name at the beginning and then write the letter. We write the letter, then sign our name at the end. So it's a little different uh, here. So he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now let's just stop there for a minute and, uh, and look at how Peter begins. He begins his letter, this letter, with good news, which is interesting because Peter is an apostle of the gospel. He's a minister of the gospel, and gospel is all about good news. So he starts off giving us good news. He says, I'm writing to you who have received a faith as precious as ours. And he starts describing this faith that he had. He says it's, a, it's an amazing, precious gift that God has given to us. And the words that he uses are words like of, of a thrilling, something that was thrillingly exciting in his life. This precious gift that he has called the gospel or, or this faith that he has in Christ. And he says, and you've received it too. He says, it's like you've won the lottery, you guys. Yeah, see, how many of you have won the lottery? I saw some of this, like you don't know, oh, I know, you won a million dollars and you don't want to share. Now, anybody, anybody ever win, like, anybody ever win anything like on a scratcher or anything like that, two bucks? Really, you play? Well, that's all right, you can't win if you don't play, so I, I always lose, because I never play, so, you know. So, anybody ever win more than two bucks? You're like, yeah, but I don't want you to know it, because I got a million in the bank. I don't, okay, anybody, anybody ever win a million? What would that be like? Be amazing, right? If you won a million dollars in the lottery, what would your reaction be? Wow. Nuh-uh. <laughs> be way better than that. Be like, yeah. And then you'd be quiet about it because you don't want anybody to know. But you, that'd, be, that'd be like fun. So Peter's like, look, you guys have won the lottery. You, you, you received this gift of faith from Christ. You were chosen to receive this gift from him. It's like you won the lottery. You didn't earn it. You didn't work hard for it. You didn't even put down a buck to get a scratcher or two bucks, whatever. I don't even know what it costs. You didn't have to do that stuff. He, he just gave you this gift. He says, we've received a precious gift of faith, and it's worth celebrating. And then he goes on and he says... Along with this good news, he says, and God, by the power of his spirit, has given you everything you need to live a godly life. Isn't that amazing? 
Because in my life, I want, I want to live a godly life. I want to live a life that's honoring to Jesus. That's, that's my passion in my life. And, uh, and he says, God's given, every, he's given me everything I need for that. I'm not left out. I'm not, it's not deficient somewhere. It's like, oh, I'll never have enough to be able to live a godly life. He says, no, I've already given you everything you need to live a godly life so that you will not be ineffective and you will not be unproductive, he says down in verse 8. He says, I don't want you to be ineffective or unproductive. In, in fact, that's just a backwards way of saying our mission, right? We're like, we want to have passionate and productive followers of Christ. He says, I don't want you to be ineffective or unproductive as followers of Christ. I want you to live this godly life that, that Jesus has laid out for you and given you as this precious gift. He goes, that's good news. But he says there will also be challenges in this life. As followers of Jesus, there will come some challenges into our lives. So I want to read some more of his letter and, where he gets into that and then describe that for us. So down in verse 12, Peter says this. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right for me to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. So Peter writes this passage, and at the beginning of this passage, he says, hey, I want to remind you of some things. I want you to remember some things, and I've got to tell you these things and remind you of these things before I die. And Jesus has let me know I'm about to die. He says, I'm about to set aside this tent that I've been living in. And he said, I know that because Jesus has let me know that, and I'm not going to die of old age. In fact, tradition tells us that Peter died on a cross just like his Savior. But when they were about to, about to nail him to the cross, he said, I can't, I can't die in the same manner that my Savior died for me. And so they nailed him upside down to a cross. And it's weird because you look at Peter and you go, 
he, although he was saved, his life was not safe. And we get this weird picture of ourselves as Christ followers. Sometimes we, we think, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I love God, and God loves me, and so everything is going to be great for me, and I will be immune from trouble. Oh, some of you have lived long enough to know that's not how it works. I mean, isn't that, that's, isn't that how it should work? It's like, come, come on, God loves me, and I love God, and we're all good, and so he should keep me from every kind of trial and harm and temptation and trouble and pain. No pain. And yet that's not how it works. So you think because you're saved in Christ, therefore you are safe in this world. And we get all focused in this world about being safe. We want to be safe. We want to be safe. When our children go on a mission trip, we pray for them to be safe. And we fail to pray for them to make a difference in the world. And Peter says, look, you're in this world. God left you in this world. He gave you this amazing treasure, this gift called faith. And it's awesome. And you are saved. But in this world, you're not safe. And when you come to the passages in the Bible that talk about suffering, don't skip over those ones. Because they apply to us. Peter says, although you have a precious gift of faith, temptations will still come into your life. That's why he wrote to us in his first letter, the time already passed is enough to have filled up the desires of the Gentiles. He says, even though you have this precious gift of faith, trials will still come into your lives. Even though you have this precious gift of faith, critics will still be there in your life. Even though you have this precious gift of faith, setbacks will come into your life. And this culture will not always favor your faith. And this culture in which we live will not, will not always favor your Christian message. Or your Christian lifestyle. So Peter says, before I go, can I remind you of some things? He says, I would give anything to be able to remind you of these things. Two things, he says, I want you to know. And they both relate to, a scripture, to God's scripture. They both relate to how this book this word from God influences and shapes our life. He says, when trouble comes into your life, you have to remember these two things. When the culture goes against you, you have to remember these two things. So he says, let me remind you. So here are the two. Number one, he says, I want you to remember that as Christians, we do not follow cleverly devised stories. Christians do not follow cleverly devised stories. So last year at the Leadership Summit, which is coming up this Thursday and Friday, if you haven't signed up yet, I can't believe you haven't signed up yet. It's going to be fantastic, and I'm going to be there, and it's going to be wonderful, and you still have time to sign up. But in case you missed it last year, last year there was a guy who spoke whose name was Joseph Grenny, and he, his talk was about crucial conversations. You ever had a crucial conversation? It's one of those conversations where the stakes are high and the emotions are high and there's a disagreement of opinion going into it. You ever have one of those? Yeah. Do you have children? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you, have a, if you have a relationship with another human being, you have had at some point in your life crucial conversations or you have avoided crucial, crucial conversations. And so they land on all of us. He goes, when you get into a crucial conversation like that, high stakes, high emotions, and dis disagreement of opinion... He says, as soon as the other person opens their mouth in that conversation, you start telling yourselves clever stories. 
So I'm in a conversation with, with, uh, with you know, my wife, let's say, and we're having this crucial conversation with all those parameters, and, and as soon as she opens her mouth, I start telling stories about her in my head. I don't even have to go out through the whole plot. It's a very fast story because I told it to myself hundreds of times. <laughs> and the story begins something like this. You always... Or, you never. Or, you're just like your mother. <laughs> oh, I know that. I don't say it. No, I don't say it. <gasps> no, no. No, I'm smarter than that. But I, yeah, I'm still alive, yeah. But I tell those stories right up here. And they influence my crucial conversations and they ruin them. And I've been trying to learn this whole last year to stop telling clever stories. He calls them, Joseph Grenny calls them clever stories because by their cleverness, they let us keep behaving in the same way we've been behaving. We put the other guy on the hook and we take ourselves off the hook by our clever stories. Now, Peter says, when it comes to your faith as a follower of Jesus, we do not follow cleverly devised stories. And he's talking about them in a little bit different light than Joseph Grenny was. When, when Peter talks about cleverly devised stories, he's talking about religious narrative. When there are religious stories or faith-filled or, or faith-oriented stories, he says some of those are cleverly devised tales. We have a lot of them in the history of culture in the world, right? Where uh, two to three thousand years ago, when the, when the Greek empire was really hot in the world, there, there was a whole system of, of Greek religion, right? Greek gods, whether it's Zeus, and we had Apollo, and all those different kinds of Greek gods. And what do we call those stories? Myths. And a myth is basically a clever, cleverly devised story. It's a story, go, that's not true. We all know it's not true. We don't worship Zeus anymore. But they did at one point. And we look at that today and we go, well, that was, that was a way they had to kind of describe what life was like and to describe psychology and to describe sociology and to describe life. But we don't really believe those things anymore. We believe they're cleverly devised stories. And Peter says, when you come to the Bible, I want you to know, as Christians, we do not follow cleverly devised stories. They're not myths. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between True stories and myth stories. Peter says uh, there, are, there are prophets and there are false prophets. He says there are teachers and there are false teachers. The word he used for false in both those cases is the word pseudo. So there are prophets and there are pseudo-prophets and there are teachers and there are pseudo-teachers. And you know, pseudo, we, we use that word. It's basically a word that means to pretend. Yeah, I mean, it means false, but it means there's somebody who's pretending to be a, a, a teacher or a prophet, but they're not. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the true prophets and the pseudo-prophets. And which ones are telling a true story and which ones are telling a cleverly devised tale. Peter says, real prophets are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Pseudo-prophets carry others along and exploit them by their fabricated stories. We live in a world today that is filled with stories. And some of the stories around us are true stories. And some of the stories around us are fabricated stories. 
Some of the stories around us are cleverly devised stories. Sometimes it's hard for us to discern which one is which. So, for example, I found a couple of news stories uh, this week that I want to I share with you. And I want you to tell me, and we'll make, when I get done with reading both of them, I want you to tell me which one is the real story, which one is a true story. All right, so the first story, uh, Dateline Washington. Here's the lead sentence. Noting that the field of presidential hopefuls currently exceeded maximum capacity, the Republican National Committee announced Monday it was offering a cash voucher to any GOP candidates willing to give up their spot in the 2016 race and run again in a later election. That's, that's one. Second one, Dateline, Brooklyn, New York. Hoping to send a message that this type of behavior would not be tolerated on the campaign trail, the Federal Election Commission announced Thursday that it had suspended Hillary Clinton for three weeks for spitting on one of her campaign volunteers. Which of those stories is true? Hard to tell? Don't want to say? Both? Neither? All right. The answer is neither. But I bet, depending on your little, on your political leaning, I bet that one of them, you think, I bet that one is true. Doesn't sound true, but I bet it is. And I want it to be. And see, therein lies the problem. We get in this spot in, our, in these religious narratives and we go, hey, I want something to be. I want something to be true. And after a while we go, I believe it is true. And what's the worst part about those two stories is you will probably see at least one of them up on somebody's Facebook post this week as gospel. Someone will put it out there like, it's true, it's true. And they get all these people are going, I knew it. Yeah, you heard it here. <laughs> I got those two stories from uh, uh, a website that uh, is called America's Finest News Source. It's also called The Onion. Do you know The Onion? It's a news, it's a website that, that creates fake news. Only they call it, the, the, the literal name is Satire. But satire and fake news are the same. And they create fake news because they know you'll lean right into it and you go, oh, that one's true for sure. I've got to post that one. And then you got suckered into something that wasn't even true. It's sometimes pretty hard to tell the difference between a true story and a not true story. There are prophets and there are false prophets. Which, by the way, just as an aside... As I, was, as I was surfing through the onion and trying to find the, the most believable stories I could find on there, I, uh, I came across this one. Overcrowded GOP field forces Iowa to construct massive town hall stadium, which was fascinating. And then as I'm reading that, a pop-up ad banner came up above that that said, read the Book of Mormon. <laughs> and I'm like, is the ad satire or is that a real ad? And let's just, you know, it, it, some of you have different opinions about Mormonism or, Mormonism or those kinds of things. Let's you think I'm just poking at that. Peter goes on at the end of chapter 1 and he says, I want you to know this, that no prophecy 
of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. One of the biggest challenges Mormonism has and Islam has in their faith story is that they are uh, religious faiths that are based on the interpretations of one person. Peter says, beware, because no prophecy of Scripture ever came from one prophet's own interpretation of things, or that word can be translated explanation of things, or imagination of things. And Peter says, look, when you're a follower of Christ, you do not follow cleverly devised tales. The story, in, in other words, what he's saying is the, story in, the stories in this book are true. He says, when, when challenges come into your life and you begin to wonder, is Jesus really real? Is this really all dialed in straight? He says, remember that these are not cleverly devised stories. And then he goes on, he says, let me remind you of something else. Let me give you another thing to think about and to remember as you walk through your life with all the challenges that come to it. Not only do Christians not follow cleverly devised stories, but he says the as Christians, we follow a completely reliable message. If you follow the Bible, if you follow the, the religious narrative of the Bible, you follow what Peter calls a completely reliable message. And that's not even my words. That's Peter's words for this. And, of course, Peter's writing to persecuted Christians. And some of his readers were wavering. Some of them were like, I don't know if we can, if we can really trust this Jesus. I don't know if the, if the apostles are really giving us the right story. And I don't know if it's worth it because we've got all this pain in our lives. And I don't know what to do about all this stuff. And their faith is wavering. And Peter says, when your faith starts to waver, make sure that you are committed to this idea that the scriptures of Christ are a completely reliable message. And when I come to that, I'm like, well, that, as a, as a skeptic, you could say that's a self-serving message. Of course, Peter, you're going to say that your message is completely reliable. Everybody says that. Every pseudo-prophet says that. How do I know for sure? How can you know that the message of the Bible is completely reliable as the message of Christ? Let me just give you three different kinds of evidence that will suggest these scriptures are reliable. They won't prove it, not scientifically. You can't prove a religious concept scientifically. But they will give evidence to support it, to say, yes, what you believe is completely reliable. Let me just give you three areas of evidence. The first area of evidence is the evidence of the record. The evidence of the record deals with all the stuff that points to the veracity and the, and the reliability of the Christian faith. And it comes through archaeology, it comes through uh, documentation, and it comes through eyewitness accounts. So, for instance, uh, ar archaeology, the archaeological evidence for the Bible is overwhelming. And so far, they haven't unearthed anything underground that they've dug up in the archaeological dig sites that has contradicted the scriptures. Sometimes they think they have, and then as they do more research, they find, oh, it actually doesn't contradict it, it confirms it. And I'm not going to give you a long talk on that, but you can go back, if that's interesting, go back and look up the archaeological evidence for the Bible. There's archaeological evidence for the record. There's documentary evidence for the record. The New Testament scriptures, for example, are the best attested ancient writings of any writings in all of ancient literature. 
documents that we don't have any problem believing were actually written by a person and that they express what they say have nowhere near the documentation in terms of number and close proximity and time as the New Testament documents do. The documentary evidence says they're amazingly reliable as the message of Christ. And then you come to the one that Peter uses in terms of the evidence of the record. He says, we, we have eyewitness evidence. We have eyewitness evidence of the fact that what the Bible says about Jesus actually happened. So Peter describes that he was an eyewitness of Jesus. He was one of his disciples who followed him around in Galilee and in Jerusalem and Judea. And so one of the early miracles that Jesus performed was for Peter's mother-in-law. Peter, Peter's mother-in-law is sick and in bed and Jesus comes into their house and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Which is really amazing that Peter completely avoided any reference to mother-in-law jokes in his letters. How did that happen? But Jesus raised up his mother-in-law, brought her back to health. That's, a, that's one of the first miracles that Peter saw Jesus do and he saw it. Then you go on to Luke chapter 8 and you find a story. There's a man named Jairus who was the leader of the local synagogue there in his town. And he comes to Jesus and Jesus is crowded by people. And, and Jairus works his way in and he says, hey, my, my daughter's sick and she's dying. Please come to my house. You could save her. And Jesus says, oh, okay, I'll come. So Jesus goes with Jairus and they begin making their way through the crowd to Jairus' house. But on the way to heal this 12-year-old girl... A woman reaches out in the crowd and she touches Jesus. She thinks, if I just touch his clothes, I'll, I'll be well. And sure enough, she touches Jesus' clothes and she, and she feels immediately her body has, is made well. And Jesus, Jesus notices something happened. And he stopped. He turns around and he says, who touched me? Peter and the other disciples are like, everybody touched you. Let's go. And Jairus is going, come on, let's go, let's go. My daughter doesn't have much time. Everybody touched you, let's just go. Jesus said, no power went out for me. Somebody just got healing. And he stopped, and this woman comes forward, and she says, I, I did. And she tells Jesus her whole story. And you can imagine how long that story was. And Jesus listened patiently. And as she's going on and on and on about her story, someone from Jairus' house comes to Jairus and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is gone. And Peter is standing right there watching the face of Jairus turn to a puddle. And then Jesus said, oh, let's go. And the disciples were saying, it's, it's too late, Jesus. Jesus said, no, let's go. And they went over to Jairus' house. He brought into the house Peter and James and John. And Jairus and his wife and the, and the five of them and Jesus went into the daughter's room where she lay dead. And Jesus said to her, little girl, get up. She came back to life. And Peter said, I saw that. Eyewitness evidence that the stories of the, of the Bible are reliable message of Christ. And then we get to the one that Peter describes here in First Peter or Second Peter chapter 1, the whole transfiguration story that you'll see, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in uh, the gospel of Mark chapter 9, and I think Matthew chapter 17. Jesus takes three of his disciples, those same three, Peter, James, and John, his closest companions, takes them up on a mountain in northern Israel, gets up on this mountain, and just somehow sort of peels back the divine invisibility cloak or something, something that kind of held people back from seeing Jesus 
power as God. And he peels that back and it says his appearance changed in front of them. The Bible says Moses and Elijah showed up with them. And it's a, it's a weird scene and no one knows what's going on. And Peter doesn't know what to do. And Peter goes, hey Jesus, it's great to have you here with Elijah and Moses. This is really fun. And Peter and, and James and John and me, we're all here together. It's like, I'll make some huts. We'll make some huts and we'll have a little hut party together with the three of you. This would be, this is, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm sure Peter would like to, you know, remove that little speech from the scriptures. But he and, Pete, and he and James and John saw Jesus transfigured before them. He says, we saw that with our own eyes. We are eyewitnesses to that. And the evidence of the eyewitnesses would convince many that what Peter says is true. The message of the gospel, the message of the scriptures is a completely reliable message of Christ. He says there's the evidence of the record. He says there's also the evidence of the man. On a whole different field of this, a whole different plane, there's the evidence of the man, Jesus himself. No one ever lived like he lived. No one ever spoke like he spoke. No one ever did the things that he did. And you go, okay, well, those are all amazing things, but did Jesus really believe that he was the Son of God? If you look into John chapter 8, verse 58, you'll find Jesus says this, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born... I am. Now, he lived hundreds of years after Abraham died. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And he used the name of God, the, the Hebrew memorial name of God, Yahweh, I am, to describe himself. He made himself equal with God. The Jews who were around him knew that he was making himself equal with God. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And some people look at that and they go, well, they're not really like, like, like one person. They're like, you know, one in spirit, one in heart, one in motivation, you know, one in mission. You, we're, you know, we're one. We're like this. Well, really, that's interesting because the Jewish leaders picked up stones to stone him to death because what they thought he was saying was he was making himself God. From the New Testament account, we find that Jesus clearly believed that he was the Son of God. And once you find out that Jesus himself believed he was the Son of God, or we would say God the Son, then you got to decide something about him. Once you find out that Jesus thought he was the Son of God, you, you got to ask this question or these questions. Was Jesus crazy? Was he a lunatic? Because, you know, frankly, if any of you were to run around going, oh, I'm the Son of God, we would all go, Yeah? Was Jesus crazy? Or was he a liar? In fact, if he was a liar, was he wicked? Was he evil? Was he a manipulative uh, steerer of opinions, knowing that what he was saying was not true? Or was he the Lord of the universe? The way C.S. Lewis put it was this. You have to ask the question, is Jesus a liar or a lunatic or the Lord? And once he claims to be the Son of God, you, it's, it really lands on being one of those three things. And so the evidence of the character of the man himself and what he said about himself and believed about himself makes you say, if he's not crazy, which history doesn't seem to suggest that he was, and if he's not evil, which no one believes that he was, then what does that leave you? He's the Lord. 
the evidence of the man. And then lastly, there's the evidence of the resurrection. This is the one, when I get, when I get into hard spots in my life, in my own spiritual journey, in my own faith story, this is the one that brings me back every time. Because there is evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the medical evidence of his death. There's a theory that's been going around for decades now called the swoon theory. Some people believe, because they don't want to accept the resurrection, they believe that Jesus didn't actually die. Which is kind of weird because they saw people die a lot more than we see people die. We, we remove it and sanitize it and put it in a hospital. But they, they, people died among them. Roman soldiers who crucified people, they killed people every day. They knew what death looked like. But there's this theory that says Jesus didn't really actually die when he was beaten to a pulp and nailed to a cross. He just sort of, you know, got weak and passed out. And his heart rate went way down and his breath rate went way down. They, they thought he was dead, so they put him in the tomb. But then he, when he was in there, the cool air of the tomb sort of revived him and then refreshed him. And then he rolled the stone away and came out and said, I'm God. And everyone ran for their lives from this frightening person. The medical evidence says Jesus died. There's not much doubt of that. The physical evidence of the empty tomb is interesting because the Jews were so concerned that Jesus had been teaching about his resurrection that they posted a guard there at his tomb because they didn't want the disciples to come in and steal the body and then go, he rose, he told you, and he rose. So they put a guard there, and then the guard, when the angels rolled this tomb, the tombstone away, the, the, uh, the guards all passed out in fright from the angels, and so they all ran away, and then they concocted this story that said, oh, the disciples came in and stole the body. Do you think that when the resurrection story got out there and the, and the church was changing the world, do you think the, the Jews couldn't have found that body? And do you think the disciples who would have dragged away that body and hid it somewhere, you think they would have given their lives for this trumped-up story about Jesus and a resurrection? And then, of course, there's the eyewitness evidence of the resurrection itself. Peter saw him after he rose. John and Mary Magdalene and the other disciples, they all saw him after he rose. At one point, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. They saw him after he rose. Visible, eyewitness evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Peter says, when you have all that evidence, you understand this, that the record of Christ is a completely reliable message. And when your faith gets challenged and when life gets tough and when culture goes against you and when you can't understand what God is doing in this world because none of it seems to make sense anymore, when all that stuff happens, go back to the book and realize and remember this. We do not follow cleverly devised stories. We follow a completely reliable message of faith in Christ. And Peter says, I want to remind you of that so that you are not ineffective or unproductive as followers of Jesus. So invest in it. Participate in it. Build it into your lives. And let Jesus carry you along as he carries the prophets in your life. Jesus, thank you for this. Thank you that you love us like you do, that you have lived this perfect, holy life. And you died for us and you rose for us and you have 
given us this faith that we live in. And you've given us a completely reliable message to encourage us in that faith. Lord, I pray for my friends here today who are struggling. Some are struggling in their family. Some are struggling in their finances. Some are struggling at work. Some are struggling because they're trying to take your message to others and their friends or their family just won't believe. But Lord, for all those who are struggling some way in their faith today, would you bring the words that you've given us today through Peter, uh, would you bring them right down into our hearts, their hearts, make it firm and make it strong. And may we understand that it's true. And through all those things, shape us to be like you. Lord, thank you. We love you. We seek you out together. Amen.